Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we will hear part two of an interview with Emily Goddard, performer and co-creator of This Is Eden, performing at 45 Downstairs as part of the VCAA 2018 VCE Drama Playlist. This is part two of the podcast. If you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Let's get to it. I think tension is used in um, the the growth of the mockeries, like the they become more intense throughout, and that's supported by um, physical gesture, but it's also supported by lighting and sound. Um, and also tension, I think, is built through a lot of the silences of the piece. And that is also for humour as well, when Jane doesn't know what to say and when Jane's searching for um, answers or something to save her, but also the, the tension in the cell um, when Mary's there by herself. There's a period of time where we see her in... Um, and then she disappears and the world goes dark. And there's a kind of light and um, sound kind of period and then Jane arrives again. I guess that's another point where we, um, that we've created so that the audience leans forward and, and, it, and it comes at quite a dramatic moment in Mary's experience and then we sort of suddenly cut to Jane and I guess that's another way like Jane to uh, to the audience for most of it I think is a way of releasing the tension of Mary um, which is interesting because in a way she's the one that is sort of the most dangerous character I think or the most the one that's kind of in a way the most like us yeah all the characters are not naturalistic, aren't they? Apart from Mary, who you talked yeah, about. Yeah, I think bit, really. Mary would be the most naturalistic portrayal. I mean, they're all. Jane is obviously also supposed to be believed as a real character. We, you don't. I think she also walks that fine line of you know, is this is this a piss take or is it not? Um, and that's important to us that she's she doesn't sort of tip over into a caricature and actually it's the same for the mockeries they should never just be a kind of um empty representation of a character they always need to come through you they always need to be seen through mary's eyes that it's always mary playing this yeah and an example of non-naturalist, a non-naturalistic example of maybe each, each of those moments, is there a clear example of, of non-naturalistic rhythm in the piece, for example? Yeah, all of the characterization, all the mockeries go out of realism, for sure. Oh. Yeah, yeah. no character would actually behave like, well, they might behave like that, but no character would actually speak or... Um, they become very grotesque. I mean, that's the sort of main thing, I think, for the three of them. They, they all sort of morph almost into monsters in their own way. Um, they're very clearly, but I think more than rhythm, I think it's through the, the expressive skills, really, that 
make that. Yeah, I don't think it's rhythm. No, that's okay. It might not be rhythm. It's just, it, it could be. Uh, the characters contrast one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but then there's, and there's contrast between Jane and Mary. Yeah. Um, is is there other, apart from in, the, in their physicality, is yeah. there other contrast that's used in a non-naturalistic way? Um, the costumes would be, they're very contrasting. Jane has um, a kind of a very... She's got, as I said, a white bonnet and a white apron and a um, like a sort of ye olde, very clean representation of what the convict would have worn. It's very white and very costumey, very clean, very kind of representational. Um, whereas Mary, even though we've taken a bit of licence with Mary because she may have been wearing a slightly different uniform inside the solitary cell she's got a very flimsy shift dress on it's it's torn it's very very dirty it's filthy um so that contrast is very clear mary's world is very messy there's dripping water um there's at one point she she um mistakes her toilet bucket for her water bucket and she tips um all of that mess over her head she, she's very it's 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 a disgusting world that mary lives in it's really really horrid um whereas jane is kind of clean she's got lots of gimmicky um cliche she's got a display behind her of an australian a map of australia made out of hessian sacks she really like she's um they're, they're sort of worlds apart i think in terms of the reality of convict life. Is conflict used in a non-naturalistic way? We sort of see the conflict that Mary has had with the different people in her life that have led her there. So we see the conflict that she's had with those characters through her mockeries of them. And we also learn about the conflict inside the factory, the different um, things the, the women did, the riots, the, um, at one point they tried to chop off the penis of the reverend. Um, some, so I guess in conflict in terms of um, real life conflict that is represented in a non-naturalistic way, I think the stories and the, the, the relationships are all being told through the mockeries is non-naturalistic. There's also a conflict that arises in a way between Jane and the audience. There's one point where um, Jane has a map of Australia and she's explaining um, she's explaining where all the convict ships came and she can't remember the names of the indigenous tribes and um, around Sydney and in Victoria and so she asks the audience and um, very often no one in the audience can answer. Maybe if you stick to this, you like, uh, do your research. I don't know, maybe take that bit out. Um, <laughs> no, it's great. It's, one, it's a um, fantastic example of non-naturalistic use of conflict, especially um, actor-audience relationships. Yeah, so, so, so what often happens is the audience don't know. Sometimes they do know. Um, but then there's a sort of tension in the air then 
whether people know or they don't, because even if one or two people know, most of the audience are sort of sitting there going, oh, my gosh, I don't know. Um, and then Jane gets upset with them a little bit later. She's feeling kind of very guilty about it um, and then she sort of lets rip at the audience for not knowing either. So I guess that's another example of conflict between the character and and the audience but also more a really kind of strong example of how the work causes, uh, provokes people to, is that conflict? The, yeah, the, the themes are it can causing conflict, a conflict, inner conflict, yes, yeah. yeah. And yeah. each, you mentioned that each, each of the mockeries uh, grow, mm-hmm. do they each grow to a climax? Would you say there are several climaxes in the piece? That yeah, one? I would say so. Um, but I think the two main climaxes would be... Um, the reverence climax, um, which is also a sort of um, physical sexual climax in the mockery, and also oh no, then there'd be there'd probably be three actually. There's another climax where um, Lady F. There's a mockery of Lady F at the end that becomes very grotesque, and then a final climax um when mary um i don't really want to give away the ending but towards the end mary begins to really fight for her life and she becomes she she starts to uh to yell out and she chants what the women used to chant um together which was we are all alike we are all alike and i guess that's probably the the climax of the show at that point it's the most it's the loudest and it's the most um desperate and extreme but that's not a mockery it's no and is the cell made non-naturalistically yeah the cell is made of an iron grid on the floor um and then there's there's drips that come from a ceiling piece that's the same the same shape and you can see where the walls finish. It's higher than the stage, so you can see where it begins. Um, but Jane kindly points out to us that there are no walls in the cell so that we can see into the cell. So she's very good at pointing out not naturally yeah, things. That's great. That makes sense. It's, all, it's all written there. Great. So in the final moments, in that climax, she is is she screaming out to the, should the audience infer that they're speaking to her as a call to arms to make change yeah yes definitely definitely um but if we were to kind of go oh well what's in her mind at that very moment it's um it's she's screaming for help yeah um but then she climbs down and the last few words of the play are definitely um it is almost like mary is kind of seeing through the passage of time to the audience right now and her last statement is one that yeah is is um more of a direct address to the audience okay well we just talked a little bit about space the fact that mary's cell is 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 non-naturalistically created Mm -hmm. does does mary stay in that cell she does yeah she can never leave that cell yeah we tried to 
We actually, interestingly, we tried in our very first season, we tried to have her leave the cell and we tried to have audience members enter the cell. And it broke the world so badly that we just couldn't do it. it, it we had to cut those parts. Well, yeah, we had to find other ways of doing them, um, those particular points, because we realised that space is so confined and the feeling of her being so confined is so important to to that to evoking that world that we we couldn't we couldn't break it. So she only takes up a very small amount of the stage. And other characters contrast that by using a lot of the space. Uh, no, no one else leaves the cell because they're Mary. Essentially, it's Mary playing them. So she. The only real big spatial shift, I think, is when um, the bed, the iron bed, comes up and becomes the pulpit, the reverend's pulpit, and also she puts it up at the very end. Um, but apart from that, it's really... Um, and that's transformation yeah. of prop in that yeah. moment, isn't it? So yeah. transforming a bed into a pulpit. Yes. yes. And yeah. Jane leaves the... Jane is not in the cell. Jane never goes on top of no. Jane never goes into the cell. But Jane um, walks around the space around it. So she's kind of she walks around the rest of the theatre. She's and the foyer because the the piece begins in the foyer. And that's that's used non naturalistically, I guess that space that use of space there. Um, Jane inhabits multiple spaces. I I can I don't think so because. It's really just the foyer of the theatre and she's meeting the audience where they are. I mean, she kind of asks them to imagine that it's the Cascades female factory, but she speaks to them as if it's the theatre. So it really is like it's her first day on the job that night when that audience is there and they're going on a tour. They get led into the theatre. She explains the set to them. She explains, um, but in a kind of silly ridiculous way that she um she doesn't i think she kind of undermines the intelligence of the audience um and then she leaves but she yeah she never walks onto the cell and the 45 downstairs space is huge it's wide yeah. wide wide yeah are you, you like are you cutting that off space somehow or do you use all of it yeah no we don't use all of it we use well the foyer has to be bigger than normal because the audience has to stay in there until jane's speech is over um, so we've had to kind of, we lost a lot of space with that. Um, but then we've got blacks around a lot of the rest of it because we just don't need the space. Is the dripping literal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the dripping came from this idea that our sound designer and composer Ian Moorhead had, which was he wanted to use a makey-makey, which is this sound device that, when it's triggered by something physical, it, it triggers a noise or a different kind of sound. And he wanted to make this harmonic structure where all the sounds could change, bells, different, all different kinds of sounds from the factory. He wanted to have them kind of triggered in a very random way by drips of water coming from the ceiling. And we experimented with this until I think the day before the preview at um, Hot House. 
where we did our premiere and it just they never they didn't we couldn't ever get the drips to work specifically but he'd created the sound design around this idea anyway so it's sort of this random harmonic structure but that's where the drip idea came from and they come down from the ceiling at various points and then at one point um, about two-thirds of the way through the show or actually probably closer to the end um, it all rains around the edges of the cell. Excellent. So there's a sound design that runs throughout. Yeah throughout yeah that's um that we it's not naturalistic it was very important to Ian and all of us actually that there weren't really literal sounds that we didn't want to sort of like the chain, the, the key and the lock and all that kind of thing. We just wanted it to be um, more atmospheric and things that sort of alluded to other sounds. Like um, there's a, the point where where Mary starts to shout out towards the end, there are um, sort of faint sounds that sound a little bit like other women's calls. There's a certain points, there's kind of sounds that might be whispers. There's sort of different, and, and you kind of like, did I hear that? Didn't I hear it? That's sort of. So it's quite non-naturalistic, the sound. Yeah. And does it, does it enhance mood or, or atmosphere? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, particularly in the moments of, of climax and it often aids the mockeries as they grow, um, particularly in the reverence. Um, mockery that's the, the 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 church bells become quite strong right. yeah and what do you think are the major symbols in, in the piece to use a symbol at, at any point like a skull might represent death is there something that symbolizes something else? the whole play is an allegory for contemporary treatment of uh of new arrivals in australia are there are there any major symbols costume used as symbol sound used as symbol said use the symbol. I don't think anything specifically um, I don't use anything nothing really in terms of like set and props is more than what it is um, is there something that symbolizes Mary's internal struggle external struggle um, Mary has a rope that she has to, that the women used to have to pick oakum inside the, um, the cells and Mary has a rope that she ties together at various points and I think that could be very symbolic of her um, internal state of mind and at the end she has tied it all together and she, um, there is a suggestion that she might hang herself with it at the end but we don't know whether she does or she doesn't, that's never resolved. Um, yeah, I think the piece is, uh, itself is symbolic, but I don't think that there are particular moments in it that, and all the characters are different, sim they're symbolic of different elements of our society, I think, and class and religion and hypocrisy. Um, and this Jane herself is a, a big symbol of our own um, sort of um, naivety and our, and our lack of education around this part of our history and then our, our sort of lack of ability to own it and learn from it.
I suppose the set itself is a non-naturalistic representation of the cell. It's not, um, the cells themselves were very, very, very tiny. It would have been impossible to have performed in something, on something that small. Um, uh, and the, yeah, it's all kind of designed to have a very rusty, old aesthetic. Um, the bed is very bare. There's no mattress on it. There's just a sort of small woolen blanket, but it's uh, it it is manipulated to become the pulpit. And also, actually, I forgot to mention this: that at one point it becomes sort of like bars that um, Mary looks at, almost like bars of a jail. Um, the water. I mean, it's all it's it's all non naturalistic. Um, so apart from some uh, representations of performances of characters, everything else that surrounds them is non-naturalistic and Jane is quite realistic because she exists in the world literally. Yeah, she literally exists in the world. Um, I mean, the only she would only be non-naturalistic in the way that she's sort of turned up a little bit. Like she, she is a little bit of a parody and that's where she was written from, that place of kind of... Um, satirizing a tour guide a kind of cliche historic tour guide um but it yeah you could still see that it's a it's a natural thing whereas the set um we've taken license with the costumes the sound the lighting um are all manipulated in in a way that evokes the 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 mood and the um the the feeling of the cell, but isn't completely realistic. That is the end of part two of our interview with Emily Goddard. That is the end of part two of our interview. If you would like to hear more, please keep listening to part three, or go to thisiseden.com.au. That is all from us at The Aside. Thanks to Aaron Searle for providing the music and Eltham College for letting us record here. If you'd like to ask us a question, please do not hesitate. Just email us at asidepodcast at outlook.com and we'll try to answer your question in a future episode. Thanks for listening.